Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. We hope you enjoy the show. Tashi Delay, everyone, and welcome back to Tibet Talks. I'm Ashwin Verghese of the International Campaign for Tibet. Thank you to all of you for joining us for today's episode, and thank you to all of you who were there for our special series last month on the four principal commitments of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We hope that all of you enjoyed watching and listening to those episodes, and we saw a very positive response from people across our audience. Thank you to all of you for helping to make that such a great success. Now we're back to kind of our normal programming for Tibet Talks. We're back to monthly episodes. And on this month's episode, we'll be discussing Tibet's rivers. Now, the rivers of Tibet are beautiful, but they are also life-sustaining and vital to the entire region. In fact, up to 2 billion people across Asia depend on the healthy flow of Tibet's rivers. The Chinese government, however, has openly declared his plan to build dozens more dams on Tibet's rivers in the decade ahead. Extensive damming will give China the capacity to turn on and off the tap of water from Tibet's rivers. Coupled with fear of food and economic instability, China's control of the waters of Tibet makes for an increasingly volatile situation for downstream countries. This is not just speculation. According to a report from the Stimson Center in 2019, China withheld water behind dams for six months while downstream countries experienced a devastating drought. So this is an incredibly important issue. Ignoring China's water agenda will grant the Chinese government another tool to establish outsized regional control over downstream nations, literally and diplomatically. Last month, the U.S. State Department convened a panel in partnership with the International Water Management Institute at the World Water Week conference in Stockholm, Sweden. And this panel focused on addressing water security challenges in the Himalayan region. ICT was proud to be a sponsor of this panel, and our own government relations director, Franz Mosner, was able to attend. Recently, Franz spoke with two of the panelists at that event. They are Seshu Dolma, the founder of the Mountain Resiliency Project, and Lobsang Yanso, a senior researcher at the International Tibet Network. So Franz spoke to the two of them again recently for a discussion about the water panel and about Tibet's rivers and the importance of taking action now. So let's listen to that conversation. And then afterward, we'll hear more from Franz. Thank you for being here. I know we have met before and had the pleasure of talking together about some of these related topics. So I really appreciate you coming and sharing uh, your knowledge and expertise with our full audience and ICT members. So I'll dive in with just a couple of starter questions and we'll go from there. So I think it's important for people to take a step back and have you explain kind of the ecological significance of of Tibet so that we can orient from there. Perhaps Lobsang, you would like to jump in on that? Sure. Uh, thank you. Thank you, friends. Uh, so in terms of ecological significance of the Tibet, um, one of uh, obviously it's uh, water resources. The second is uh, the the kind of uh, you know glaciers that uh, Tibet plateau stores and glaciers being the 
are the major sources of uh, Asia's river. So it's really, really important, not only for Tibet, but also for the downstream nation as well. And then with the with the Tibetan plateau, we also have a huge, uh, you know, permafrost, and which really helps to sink the carbon dioxide. So that's also in terms of climate change and in in terms of uh, you know protecting the ecosystem. You know, permafrost is really really important. But then right now the problem is uh, the the rapid uh, permafrost melting is another major problem that we see on on the Tibetan plateau. And then finally, I would like to highlight in terms of grassland. You know, I mean, grassland Tibet has a huge land that is a gra covered by grassland, and the kind of uh, you know livelihood that people uh, tibetan nomads have uh, you know lived for thousands of years is very uh, sustainable you know i mean ecological sustainable and so that in a way also helps the whole tibetan plateau and then also in a way helps the global climate change uh, you know controlling and then also the downstream nation as well so i feel that uh, with its significance these are the major uh, issues that uh, i mean really helps the to sustain the Tibetan plateau and then helps the downstream or or its neighboring countries. Sashi, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, on top of um, the environmental factors that Lopsan Lab pointed out, like the permafrost, the glaciers, the rivers, there's also a huge, uh, we have huge rare earth and precious metal reserves in inside Tibet. And um, these are stored in like up, up in our deserts, up in the highlands and, you know, the mining activity that goes around these rare earth metals is um, it's a huge concern for a lot of the downstream countries. On top of the, the rivers and the permafrost and the grasslands that uh, that Lopsanla has been talking about, there's the human factor of development and infrastructure that has been a major issue with um, damming the rivers mining the, the rare earth metals, removing and banning the nomads from the grasslands, all of the human elements of the environmental um, degradation in Tibet is so intertwined and so important to talk about too. Before we you know, turn um, go deeper into the water issue, I just wanted to ask uh, another follow-up question on the grasslands. Uh, you know, there's a a serious myth out there, not just um, related to China, that you know, grasslands and nomadic grazing on them is an ecological problem, right? We have the same thing seen in the United States, elsewhere in the world. Uh, so I would like if you can, if you could comment on that uh, issue. Um, and of course, I already said that I think it's a, a kind of a myth, but if you could expand a little bit on how that really works in the, in the you know, scientifically. Yeah, sure. Um, in terms of with the grasslands, what the Chinese government and the Chinese scientists are perpeting is that with the nomads grazing their yaks, their sheep, their goats up in the up in the gra grasslands, it's degrading, and they're saying that it's leading to desertification of the grasslands. So it is it is not so much scientifically proven it is more a tool for colonization it's a tool of control to put the blame of desertification of the grasslands on the nomads a lot of can talk more about the science behind what is actually happening in the grasslands but for me it i totally see it as a tool of colonization and removing the nomads from the grasslands 
removing them from their traditional culture, removing them from their landscape, their ancestral landscape, and placing them into these reservation towns. That's what I see. Lobsonla, if you can talk about the science behind desertification. Yes, one I think uh, uh, with the desertification on the on on the Tibetan plateau uh, is that because of the rising temperature that we see on the Tibetan plateau, so that uh, is also another one reason of uh, you know massive uh, grassland turning into desertification, and then as Siju uh, mentioned in earlier infrastructure development, the massive infrastructure development that we see on the Tibetan plateau also has led to the desert on the grassland. So grassland, uh, I think right now turning into a desert is a major uh, concern that, uh, you know, every Tibetan in, in, inside Tibet, you know, they, they uh, do really raise about that. But then even the IPCC, you know, uh, report also highlighted by saying that uh, Tibetan nomads uh, and the grasslands are the ones, uh, you know, who should be protected and they should be part of the whole uh, ecological, you know, conservation and whole, they, they should be part of whole this movement. But then uh, how Chinese government responded uh, with the, in, in the name of, uh, you know, uh, ecological conservation, removing whole Tibetan from the, you know, grassland and then getting control of the land. And so recently we have also witnessed how Chinese government, sometimes uh, as uh, Sichu mentioned, uh, you know, the colonialism, you know, sometimes in the name of, uh, you know, green energy or ecological con uh, conservation, you know, I mean, people get manipulated and policies are formulated in the name of ecological conservation, but not really benefiting that policies to the local community who are located. So what we see nowadays is Chinese government, they see that Tibetan Plateau is a huge land of solar and wind energy. And so the government, the Chinese government is building massive solar, solar panels on the grassland. And so these solar uh, you know, energy would be diverted or carried forward on the on the north of uh, China and not really benefiting the local local people. So these kind of I mean policies that we see, uh, which is not uh, ecological, uh, you know, sound and it doesn't really benefit the grassland and or it doesn't really benefit the uh, nomads uh, who are on the grassland for thousands of years. So it's major concern. It's not only the Tibetans who are raising concern on this issue. Even the Chinese, many of the Chinese scholars say that you no know, nomads should be protected. Grasslands should be protected. Nomads should be part of the ecological conservation. But then, such as the cases of Sangjangyuan Nature Reserve, where heads of the three resources, where they say that nomads are removed, but then there are various uh, research saying that nomads being removed from this area has not benefited their livelihood and has not benefited the grassland as well. I think it's time to um, switch more directly to the uh, official topic here of, of the rivers and the waters. Um, before we do that, I just, Lobsang, for those who uh, may not be aware, can you just say what the IPCC is? Uh, IPCC is Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And so, I mean, these uh, 
group is major. It, all the scholars are also has uh, some relation with the governments. And once they release a report, uh, they have a working you know, committee and the scholars, they re uh, release a report which has been consulted and uh, referred by the UN climate change conferences and other major policymakers. So, so the it's report kind of a it's kind of a my understanding is it's a very definitive, comprehensive look globally at climate change. It's just the acronym may not have been what everybody recognizes. So thank you for that. Uh, so then, you know, I've already mentioned some of this that I want to go back to a few points, uh, setting aside the potential of clean energy defined as you rightly did as solar and wind, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of rhetoric that comes out of uh, the Chinese Communist Party that the only way that it can meet its climate targets is more and more and larger and larger hydrologic, hydroelectric dams on you know, the eight rivers that are sourced from Tibet. Um, so if you guys could maybe tag team and Sashu maybe uh, give us a start is what are some of the dangers of the continued building and operating, you know, the effectiveness of these large projects? I, I don't know if we can show a picture of how massive these dams are. These are like ginormous dams that um, it's not your run of the mill dams. It, it's. It's those mega, mega, mega dams that ha can power many entire cities. And these dams are being placed right, they're, they're being placed within the plateau on these rivers. And these, these are rivers that cross many, many borders. They, they, they have to feed more than a billion people. And when it, when it is turned off and when it is impeded right up in the upstream area, then the downstream region, you know, they're going to be very, very vulnerable to. Um, so this is the whole geopolitical issue of not having water treaty rights between upstream and downstream nation. And this is something that the, the PRC is completely taking advantage of. And they're using it as a control mechanism for the downstream nations. So in terms of like, if you see that, if you just go online and look at the the pictures of the Three Gorges Dam, the dams on um, the, the the dam planning on Yalunsangpo. If you look at those pictures, you can see what a massive ecological issue they will pose. I mean, when something is that big, you know there's going to be um, sediment issue with sediment going downstream. These sediments are so integral to how um, the downstream farmers you know, how they provide nutrition for their farm, um, nutrition for their land to grow and produce. And then with the fish migration, with the bird migration, there's all these flora and fauna impacts of these dams. And then there's a human side of it. Um, these, these dams have been known to um, have seismic activity around it because of their, because of their sheer scale. And then the geopolitical issue of control with the lack of transparency around, you know, sharing the plans for how these dams will be used and how all of this water and energy, it's not for the nearby communities. The nearby communities are the ones who are being relocated and displaced to other reservations, most likely. So these dams are purely there to serve the, the greedy needs of developing the urban population of 
China. But Lawson, I can talk more about the, the, sci the science behind these dams. And I'd be particularly interested, uh, you know, on top of whatever you want to focus on, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of risks that have been raised already by Seshu, but, um, and I'm sure you'll speak to some more, but my understanding is that there's also kind of this vicious cycle that, you know, the very climate change goal that is being used as potentially, one might say, an excuse to build these is actually making the dams more vulnerable to and I'd like you to finish that sentence for me. It's making the it's making the dams more vulnerable. And please go ahead. Yeah, sure. And then obviously destroying the whole ecosystem. Uh, I mean, uh, I would like to I mean give more emphasis uh, on on the Brahmaputra uh, and uh, as China has always uh, you know focused uh, more on clean energy and I feel like the the major countries and also the big dam uh, developing uh, companies they are promoting uh, hydropower dams but then not really understanding the whole uh, uh, fragile ecosystem of the Tibetan plateau and uh, then I mean the whole Tibetan plateau itself is also very sensitive with the earthquakes and uh, so if uh, you know if we see you know Chinese government continues to build dams on the upstream of these major rivers then you know dams could also you know leads to you know earthquakes or earth earthquakes can also you know uh, destroy the whole uh, dam projects and then uh, giving a lots of negative impact on the people and ecosystem and also the downstream nation as well so as Siju earlier mentioned that there is no transparency and uh, Chinese government is in fact you know taking advantage of the whole uh, nature of the you know the these towns boundary rivers uh, you know Tibet being the uh, head of the uh, the sources of these major rivers then Chinese government not sharing or not having any water treaty with its downstream nations and uh, suppose with with the Brahmaputra on on Yanunsango you know India and Chinese government and also Bangladesh they don't have any water treaty agreement so there is no international transboundary water agreement on Brahmaputra as well. And then when Chinese government, when they continues to build dams, the neighboring countries or the downstream countries, they remain silent. And so in a way, it will also have an impact on they, their people as well. And so in this whole process of Chinese government in the name of clean energy, uh, when we look at the you know grassland policies or also or, or the dams to dam construction on the international rivers, there is no participation of local people in this whole climate policy or decision making, and then uh, participation of communities and you know gender equal participation, uh, and at the same time there is no environment independent environment impact assessment has been carried forward. So I think right now I feel that you know the down Muslim nations and are not only the states but also the civil societies and communities environment NGOs we should come together and then raise this concern because I mean the kind of climate change that we see nowadays on whole Himalaya belt not only in Himalaya belt all over the world the floods that we see the fires and wildfires so it's very worrisome and then frontline communities are the ones they get most affected by these climate change policies so it's 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 a i feel that it's a time that everyone should come together and then raise our voices and make the big states or the big companies accountable and then 
hopefully to bring positive changes. Thank you. Thank you very much. I to pick up on two of the things you, you guys said. One is you know, it's becoming more and more emphasized in riparian you know, issues and management that the rivers are transboundary, right? So they are they have to be managed more in from that perspective of cooperation to avoid you know problems but also increase benefits and we've seen some of that i will talk again about how wonderful it was to have you um at the stockholm water week while you know conference and that was a theme right we saw some examples of how this can be done in in a proper way and it begins with that willingness and the information flow and i found it interesting that you said that about um, no water treaties. Is there any more you can expand on that or if there's ways you can you know, compare that to places where it's being done in a more functional way? I think in terms of uh, water treaties, uh, you know, there has been al always a more focus from international uh, water treaty agreement on the South Asia. But then within the South Asia, I feel that there should be also regional you know norms and practices that can also uh, in a way manage the whole whole uh, river system and i also would like to say that i mean water it's a river is supposed to be you know flow naturally you know it's not our power or it's not our role to manage or control the river let the river flows you know i mean it's a natural ecosystem and then if we if we damage the whole, you know, natural uh, ecosystem or the, you know, natural phenomena, then it would definitely have a lot of impact. And then in terms of water management, I mean, uh, how states can come together. I mean, suppose with the industry, where, you know, India and Pakistan has a, you know, uh, Indus Water Treaty. And then in that, you know, the third, third party like World Bank has, uh, you know, taken initiative and then they have also involved in that. So in that case, I think that um, even in uh, Brahmaputra River, they, if there could be also possibility of third party, you know, coming together and then bringing all the nations, uh, you know, uh, on the on the table and then uh, having some positive uh, involvement. And then I also feel that, you know, earlier in, in the beginning, we talked about traditional knowledge and, uh, you know, the traditional practices and the local communities, the whole community who have lived on these uh, whole international rivers, they have their own traditional methods and understanding and knowledge on to, you know on the river system and i think uh, both from tibet in tibet uh, tibet's area where we have a tibetans living uh, near the river system and then also in arunachal and assam uh, you know people have lived and they, it's their culture and they have a traditional literature and uh, songs and all this uh, i think that knowledge should come together and then also i feel that they there could be a possibility of having them I wanted to just circle back to one item in here and turn it over to, to Tseshu because, you know, there's this adage that I find very um, compelling that where you exploit resources, you're often, if not always, exploiting people. And I'm curious how you would articulate that in the context of Tibet and the you know pretty obvious agenda of the communist party to erase you know tibetan civilization writ large if you'd like to pick up that thread it'd be great 
I think the old adage um, you're referring to is water as peace, right? But here uh, it's absolutely being used to the contrary by the by the Chinese government. It is used as a tool of control, a tool of uh, oppression, a tool of exacerbating the cultural genocide where we've already been experiencing for the last six decades in Tibet. Um, so it's absolutely just furthering their agenda of erasing um, the traditional lifestyle of Tibetans. It's furthering their agenda of putting in more control of Tibetans within Tibet and then extending that control to the downstream nations uh, in South and Southeast Asia um, so that they stay silent about what's happening upstream and downstream. And then we have a huge, something we haven't talked about much on this uh, in this conversation today, the human rights, the, the environmental human rights defenders we have in Tibet, how there's a number of them who are in prison in Tibet. And they're in prison because they've spoken up about the environmental impacts, the human rights impact of what this crazy... Chinese infrastructure development has has been looking like. And, you know, we cannot talk about the environment and climate change in Tibet without talking about the human rights issues, right? And with human rights, you know, for the last 50, 60 years within the Tibetan issue, we've been focused so much on the human rights. And now there's a huge shift on talking about the environmental issues and using this opportunity to get Tibet to the global platform and using international platforms to highlight the environmental and human rights issues in Tibet. So focusing also on the environmental human rights defenders and they, how they are present, how Tibetans in Tibet cannot speak up about you know, their voices have been taken away and we get arrested if we speak about what's happening to our communities. Yeah, that's a, a really important thing to raise. And I thank you. I think some of us are talking about, you know, the the environmental and human rights crisis go, you know, hand in glove. It's it's a mistake to put them off into separate silos, which unfortunately does happen um, in some, especially in some important you know, negotiations over, over the climate change. So I really appreciate that. And maybe we can expand a little bit on that, but um, talking about if you have any more on the ground examples of this, of this happening, because it, you know, let's let's bring it home with some you know, personal stories because that's that's really important, as you said, to give to give a voice to the voiceless. Yeah, I would I would like to I mean before CJ, I would like to also add in terms of Tibetan environmental uh, defenders, uh, we have for many cases of Tibetan intellectuals who have been arrested uh, in the recent years, uh, such as including. Uh, you know, uh, and also So these people have been involved in the environmental protection activities, but then what happens after a certain uh, time, you know, I mean, initial phase, you feel like there is some space, but then once they started, uh, they start the activities, environment protection activities, you know, then, you know, they get arrested and then, you know, they, they get jailed for, you know, 10 to, I mean, 10, you know, and 15 years. So, which is very, very sad. And also, you know, we have also right now in, in, in Tibet, local Tibetans, uh, you know, community, traditional leaders, uh, communities and monasteries and nunneries 
taking initiative in terms of uh, environment protection activities like uh, you know waste management or tree plantation so these activities should be also acknowledged by that but then the arrest of uh, whole tibetan environment defenders i feel that at the international platform we have not been able to receive much uh, you know support from the other you know communities where they work uh, in terms of release of the environment defenders so i think this is one scope i feel that you know we can seek more collaboration with the other uh, communities from all over the world and then bring our uh, environment defenders in their 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 platform and then uh, have uh, new collaboration and support from each other i think that's one thing that uh, we can do so uh the kind of uh, i feel that uh, you know sacrifice and the protest that we see in tibet uh, you know the artists and intellectuals their contribution on whole tibet's environment movement should i i feel that should acknowledged by the chinese government sometimes you know the kind of environment policies uh, produced by the chinese government these policies are not even in tibetan language and we have tibetans who 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 speak and read tibetan but then not having policies in tibetan language is uh, completely you know uh, neglecting the importance of the tibetan people and it's also an act of uh, colonialism so i feel uh, there is a major problem in that so i would request i mean situla to share your views i'm going to just turn because we're looking at the clock to something you said earlier and an area that i'm personally very interested in and i think others would like to hear about is the idea of this these the the pursuit of green energy setting aside hydroelectric as i think we've all got a lot of skepticism about that the solar and wind that you mentioned these giant installations we have to find solutions somewhere uh, but i feel there's a lot of evidence and there's a lot of experiments out there or even you know on the ground work being done that integrate or co-manage the needs of the clean energy with the other benefits of you know herding and farming and all these other uh you know that are seen somehow as you know an either or choice and uh, i would like to see if you could comment on that but also in doing so you know highlighting that there does seem to be choices that could be being made and they're not i haven't found a solution yet in terms of <laughs> I haven't found a solution and also I haven't seen many solutions out there like even with the solar and the wind I am really concerned like if there are mega mega solar farms that are put in Tibet and the deserts of China I am really concerned about how this could also further displacement of um traditional people in these landscapes so I haven't found I mean I'm really looking for ways that um we can still have solar farms and we can still have um nomads and traditional people living in these landscapes i haven't found a good solution for that only thing i've seen right now has been further displacement and further putting into pe- putting people into reservations so i don't know a love song have you seen better solutions so it sounds like what you're saying is it's something that needs to be focused on instead of, of instead of ignored. Is that Yes, absolutely. Um, they need to be better investment. I mean, if they're going to spend billions of dollars into mining, uh, hydro, uh, all these infrastructure development projects in Tibet, 
there needs to be better investment into actual clean energy that can actually be sustainable with the people uh, who live there. So bringing in more um, inputs from traditional knowledge, bringing in more inputs from how communities actually have lived and survived in these landscapes for so long. And, you know, tapping into the technological advancements that China has been so well known for, but also opening it up and making research and development more transparent to um, what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, You know, this opening up is what we really need to see. But so far, I haven't seen it. Hopefully not our final, but potentially our final question to you, Lobsang La, picking up on that, is there are mechanisms, right, that are used both locally, um, nationally, and internationally that often spoken, uh, you know, labeled, in, you know, environmental uh, assessments. Uh, and you mentioned that earlier. I'd like maybe you to comment on what those are for people who may not know, and then how is China treating that kind of opportunity? Oh, sure. Thank you. Environment impact assessment uh, is, I mean, is is a mechanism where every project developments or or a project uh, you know, implementer or company companies or states. Uh, so this assessment is supposed to carry before any they bring any projects on the on the land. Uh, and so this uh, assessment is supposed to be an independent uh, assessment of the development projects. But then, um, so this also kind of demands some kind of freedom and human rights protection uh, and legal rights protection on the land. And uh, with, with the case of Tibet, um, I, I feel like there is no independent environment assessment happening. Uh, whereas even if there is some kind of, uh, you know, I mean, assessment, so it has been done by the uh, Chinese government. So one, one policy that uh, we can see is that recently the Chinese government were released a report uh, policy in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, the the policy is called Qinghai Tibet uh, Environment Protection Law. So, but then this law says that uh, it's the local government who has the authority to implement uh, the the mining activities. So, local government has an affiliation with the you know the CCP, and uh, so this so local governments are always in a rush to bring economic development uh, the so-called economic development on the region where you know they they will get in a way in a long term you know they get a promotion there is a personal you know gain and so for them you know economic development is more important than environment protection so this in a way also proves that you know it doesn't bring any uh, you know better mechanism or environment impact assessment and the second is that you know to have a very independent you know strong environment ngo is really really important but then in 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 china it's all government uh, related ngos and uh, so this also you know gives a lots of uh, you know negative feedback on how you know you bring uh, you know projects and then that can also in a way you know supports the environment and not really impacting the local local um, uh, people so i feel that you know chinese government for them if they want to you know seen by world as the you know, global climate leader or they want to promote uh, you know the green energy or the or or the you know carbon they 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 talk about you know whole 
protection and you know glo global climate change or you know the adaptation and all um but then the basic you know factors are really really important in terms of having an independent environment ngos protecting the human rights and then climate change and then protecting the environment is also being a part of human rights then you know acknowledging the local people participation of local communities so these components should come together and then only you know they can have you know really i mean green green policies otherwise uh, in the name of economic development as you mentioned earlier you know the kind of uh, economic development which doesn't really benefit the local people but then they ways to extract as much as possible to get the benefit to the non non tibetans or the or the chinese uh, so this is uh, what what would we see in in tibet right now uh, great. So I think we are um, coming to a close, uh, but I did want to open the floor if, and I'll start with you, Tsechi, is uh, if you have any other, you know, closing comments that you want to share with the audience, especially something that I may have missed in in asking uh, questions. So uh, please. No, I think my final push would just be to stress on the topics we've talked about, but also to, you know, we really need to with climate change and you know environmental degradation human rights all of that in the forefront of the international platform we really need to bring tibet uh, we really need to if not tibet the tibetan plateau you know we need to bring these issues from tibet to the forefront we need to you know step up to the international platforms and use this global limelight to stress on the importance of Tibet being a third pole, Tibet being a powerhouse of traditional knowledge that our uh, nomads and our people have been using for centuries, and then also stressing on the uh, human rights environmental defenders we have in Tibet and how they're imprisoned and how, you know, these are excellent segues to get the Tibetan issue into, um, you know, finding solidarity with other movements, but also pushing our pushing our agenda forward of human rights and environmental protection in Tibet to the forefront too. Um, that's my final say. Love Sangla. Yeah, I think I, I think even I feel that what Situ has raised, uh, you know, I want to also add a little bit more on that at the whole international, you know, forums uh, and uh, platforms. So when everyone talks about climate, uh, they are hardly anyone who would bring issue of uh, climate change in, in Tibet or water security in, in, in Tibet as well. So right now, currently, I feel that uh, at the international platforms, uh, nobody really talks about uh, Tibet's environment. Uh, so I feel that, you know, the especially, you know, like-minded and or, or uh, you know, allied uh, and countries like U.S. or other U European countries, I mean, they have been doing some, uh, you know, I mean, great initiatives and, but then I feel that there is need of more of active, uh, you know, involvement and actions on that. And then similarly, the neighboring countries or, or the downstream countries of Tibet, I feel that they should take uh, more, proactive role and then raise these concerns. 
because at the global climate uh, change, the COP meetings, you know, Tibet does not have uh, official representation because you and at the COP meetings, they don't have uh, any uh, official delegation of uh, stateless people or occupied nations. Uh, so we are not in a global climate, uh, you know, official uh, negotiation table. So it, it's a really, uh, I think, concerning issue that we see. And then, yes, I mean, at one point, these big, uh, you know, meetings are important, but then I think at the same time, you know, finding allies, uh, I mean, solidarity with the also environment, NGOs, civil society, universities, research, uh, researchers, scientists, and uh, we should find platforms and opportunities in all these areas. And then uh, I think uh, we can we can have some positive positive changes. And then finally, always, you know, remembering the uh, sacrifices that Tibetans inside Tibet have done in terms of environmental protection. So they uh, sacrifice and then, um, you know, be right now and uh, many of them are still in jail, you know. It's for me, I mean, personally, it's, it's I think, uh, really helps me to want to focus a little bit more when I think of their the sacrifices. And thus, I feel that, you know, every one of us, we should always remember their sacrifices and then find even among us, ourselves, you know, Tibet groups, uh, researchers, you know, activists or students, we should also uh, collaborate and, and work work together. Thank you both so much for sharing all of your experiences and deep scientific knowledge and everything else you've been able to share with our community and with our audience. Um, and we'll be sure that it gets out as far and wide as possible. Uh, so again, thank you for participating and look forward to when we can all speak again. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, thank you again to uh, Lobsang and Seshula for joining us for this Tibet talk. And thank you to all of you who are watching and listening to this. At this point of the conversation, I'd like to bring in my coworker who just led that discussion with Lobsang La and Seshula, and that is ICT's Government Relations Director, Franz Matzner. So let's get Franz into the conversation here. Thanks for joining us, Franz. Let me start with you right now and ask you, what are some of your big takeaways uh, from that discussion with Lobsang La and Seshula? Sure, thank you very much. Um, I'll try to zero in on three because they covered uh, so many different interlocking, very important issues. To me, one of the takeaways is the concept of self-determination. The term wasn't used, but when you look at what's happening in Tibet, um, there's kind of a cascade effect. The Tibetan people are being left out of what you know, is their lands and their traditional knowledge in discussions, or let's not even call them discussions, in, you know, kind of an iron fist top-down development uh, approach. And when the people are left out, bad decisions are made. And when you consider that, then it's taking away the self-determination of all the downstream countries as well, and all of the people there that depend on the rivers. They can't make their own independent decisions they have to constantly be reacting to the threat of China, who has the higher ground. Uh, the second thing I want to emphasize is the point around traditional knowledge. This um, theme also came up very much in the World Water Week discussion panels. And I think it's very important to emphasize one aspect. There's, I think, some misunderstandings out there about what traditional knowledge really means for 
many it's not you know obscure but for some it is and something i learned at the conference is it's important to understand that these are systems they're not you know some you know uncivilized or you know pre prehistoric or whatever word we want to use in the propaganda that uh, the chinese government often uses to set up that apart or denigrate it these are you know scientific systems that have been used for thousands of years to manage resources um, so that they can be sustainable. And I think that's a very important um, part of the equation that's often left out. And then the third thing that I'll uh, also emphasize is the idea that also was a theme at World Water Week of using water for peace. There's peace is not just the absence of overt conflict. It's trust that the peace is going to be sustained and that people are going to benefit from it. And clearly what our panelists depicted and emphasized is there is not that security. That security doesn't exist for the Tibetan people. It doesn't exist for the downstream people um, that all depend on the healthy flow of, of these rivers. So that is something that I think the international community needs to emphasize, uh, hold China accountable, and also demand that there be a your cooperative approach that has been successful in other riparian systems, or at least is being uh, worked towards. Uh, so that that is a critical part of any riparian system management. You'll see a theme here that you know China has choices to make here. Thank you, thank you very much, Franz. And uh, you mentioned a couple times in your response the World Water Week uh, panel that you were able to attend yourself in Stockholm. And uh, as I mentioned, ICT was very proud to sponsor that event, and it was convened by the U.S. State Department in partnership with the International Water Management Institute. So a very important event. You were there yourself in Sweden. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? It was fantastic. Um, it was uh, really inspiring and eye-opening, the scale of uh, the participation. I think it was like 190 or more countries uh, coming together, government officials, experts, all focused on how water, the water crisis can be addressed. That was one of the most stunning facts that I think emerged. You know it in your head, but when it's said over and over again is that, you know, by uh, 2025, 50% um, of the world's population will be facing water scarcity, which is a stunning statistic considering the timeline we're looking at. And that's definitely exacerbated by climate change. Uh, this is a global issue, uh, and that really was um, that came home hard being there, but also the kind of inverse is just how many people are engaged um, in trying to address this in a cooperative manner. And it was really inspiring. Thanks, Franz. Uh, like I said, ICT was really pleased to be part of that event and uh, grateful to the State Department and the Institute for uh, for convening that and to all the speakers who took part in it, including we're getting close to the end of the program here. We have a couple minutes left, but I do have a question here that came in by email from Gordon Kaywood. And Gordon, thank you so much for your question. Franz, does China plan to mine rare earth elements on the Tibetan plateau? They would be repeating the environmental epidemiological atrocities they created at Bayan Obo in Inner Mongolia. Then 2 billion lives and livelihoods would be at risk. So Franz, What's your response to that, or is there anything you'd like to elaborate on um, that we've already heard uh, in response to uh, Gordon's question? I, I think that our um, guests today really touched on this uh, in you know directly, uh, so I can only add one or two 
points. And you know, one is that uh, the mining tailings, um, which is the pollution that comes from large scale mining, are likely what's being referred to here and they flow downstream as well as into the you know, local environment. And particularly if they're not done with the proper environmental uh, safeguards, which we've just heard they are not, they are highly polluting and can cause a lot of health issues to everybody uh, within the vicinity and further away. And, and the simple answer is yes, that's happening. The rare earth metal, metals are already being mined and there's growing concern about uh, how China um, intends to use its lithium, um, which we're all starting to realize is a, a critical metal. Thank you very much, Franz. Um, before we wrap up then, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience? Anything that you'd like to add to what we've already discussed today to, to leave our viewers with? Yeah, there's just one piece of what both of the panelists here raised is the idea of choices. I, uh, I think that this needs to be emphasized that the PRC has choices to make on how they interact with the international community, how serious they are about meeting their targets and being honest about sharing information. Um, and as uh, Seshula said, like investment, you know, that there's an importance in investing in human rights and environmental issues. And just draw one more example back to clean energy. There is a lot going on uh, all around the world, experiments, pilot projects, and even work happening already on the ground on integrating different needs from solar panels and wind farms so that they can be, you know, uh, integrated with nomadic uh, lifestyles and traditional ways of life, or maybe we shouldn't say easily because it still needs to be worked on. But that's a really good example of ways that we could be looking and China specifically could be looking at choices instead of its dismissal of human needs and its uh, downward iron fist approach. Thank you so much, Franz. And uh, that's going to have to be our last word for today. So I think that's a good word for us to end on, kind of looking forward to what needs to be done now. So thank you so much for being here, Franz. Uh, thank you for leading that conversation. And thank you to, once again, Lobsang Lan Shula for being here and for all of their work to help protect Tibet's rivers and to make the world aware of the crisis that's happening there. And thank you again to all of you who are watching and listening to this program. We'll be back next month in our next episode of Tibet Talks. And you can tell Franz's dog is very excited for that. Yeah, he, you know, you wouldn't believe the commentary I hear uh, over and over again on this topic. Absolutely. So we hope you'll all join us again next month. Until then, as we always say on Tibet Talks, stay safe, stay well, and stay active. Jujuche. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org slash pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org slash support. Thank you, and see you next time on Tibet Talks.